0: Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Uh, Good to be back. I was with you all last December. November, um, somewhere around then, and I think I, I share this kind of in some way, shape, or form every time I'm here, but my, Ashley, my wife, and I, we love you guys. We love Somerville. Super thankful for what you guys are doing, what this church is doing. I'm um, thankful on a personal level for your pastor, Fletcher, and, and Megan, his wife. They, um, uh, uh, Fletcher was actually my boss for two or three years, and then his wife uh, and him did premarital for us, and then um, Fletcher officiated our wedding. So special place in our heart. Um, all that to say, we enjoy being here. We love you guys. Um, Excited to dive into Genesis and just kind of see what got us to say. So uh, once a week or so, I kind of like to go downtown and work downtown. Um, just to kind of remind myself, get out of this Brookline bubble and, and remind myself, we live in like this world-class city, right? And so um, this past week, it kind of feels like, I don't know if you feel this way and now you're going to hate me because we're going to have a blizzard in two weeks, but it feels like we turned the corner a little bit um, and, and we're kind of out of, this winter wasn't that bad, but we're out of the thralls of, of winter. And so um, this week, I, I went downtown and kind of just allowed myself to enjoy the city a little bit more. Uh, allow myself to kind of walk around. And so Friday, I got off the tea, the Arlington Tea Stop on the Green Line, and um, just walked through the garden, uh, the public garden. And if you've ever been down there, you know it's beautiful. And although, you know, mid to late March, things aren't in bloom just yet. It's kind of some gray tones and stuff like that. Um, But you know, like in a few months, it's going to be amazing. Um, And it was actually pretty interesting that this Friday, there were tons and tons of kind of Parks Department or Parks employees um, just working there on the garden down there doing a ton of different things, right? So there's one person kind of raking debris and, and emptying the trash. There's a, a few other people kind of working on um, the grass or the soil. There were per- people working on that, that pond in the middle where the, the swans and the swan boats are, just kind of doing some maintenance type of things. Um, and so uh, they're just working on it, getting ready for the spring, getting ready for, for May, for June, for July, doing all these things. And um, if, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that this place is also a huge tourist attraction, not just for the locals, but for people that come from out of town. It's actually like the fourth or fifth most visited place in the city. Um, and you know it's beautiful, if you've seen it. You know, a warm spring day in May. you got the flowers, you got the, the fountains, the statues, and all of this with like a, a skyline background, no matter what part of the garden you're at. And so I, this kind of got me thinking, like seeing all these employees working, like what actually goes into maintaining or up keeping up or getting a garden or something like that ready? Uh, for for the kind of the best time of the year. And so I did some research, and it was actually pretty interesting. Um, There's actually a lot of steps. On top of all the things that I just shared, that these employees, they come and they do these things for the whole month of March. It's actually really a year-long process. So um, if you didn't know, I didn't know this, there's actually a bunch of greenhouses uh, throughout the city that that the city kind of maintains, and they use those spaces to plant flowers and plants and things throughout the entire year. And then come April, May, they actually uh, distribute those plants um, to various parks in the city. Um, and so I think uh, uh, the swans that are in the, the pond, like not the, the boats, but the real swans, they're actually taken during the winter and kept at Franklin Park Zoo um, and cared for. And so there's just like a lot of things that go into kind of getting the garden ready and maintaining the garden throughout the whole year. And it's interesting, like this garden, this huge garden, this huge attraction, this big kind of project is not like one or two big things. It's a bunch of small steps right, throughout the whole year, a bunch of small steps, right? It's the people that run the greenhouses making sure that the temperature is at the proper, uh, uh, at the proper place and that the ventilation is, is working well and that um, the discussions and the plannings about where to move the plants and the flowers and where to put all these things, it's a bunch of really small steps. Like, it's not a bunch of big things. A bunch of people taking really small steps together to create and eventually get to this beautiful garden. And I think this bleeds into other places of life. Of course, we understand this. If you um, run a business or you just work in a business, you understand that it's a bunch of small steps. If you're in grad grad school, it's a bunch of small steps. You're planning a wedding, it's a bunch of small steps. Or you're a parent. You know, parenting isn't one or two big things. It's a million little things. You know that pulling off these big things, whether it's a garden, a business, or being a parent, is a bunch of small steps. And, of course, take that a step further, right? It's not just this garden or this project. It's not just these things in our lives. But there's a spiritual aspect to this too, right? Our walks with God. If you're here and you're a Christian, like, I'm sure you want to see God do big things in your life. I'm sure you want to see God do big things in other people's lives. And I think, you know, God, I want to see you do massive things in my life, right? Whether it's freeing me from this sin or whether it's seeing uh, this family member that is so far from you and so bitter towards the church. We want to see God bring this person in. Right? We want to see God do massive things. We want to see God bring us this God-fearing spouse so we can have this God-fearing family. But it's interesting, when it comes to the spiritual side of things, I think we so often overlook the fact that God does these big things through small steps of faith. That God brings about these biggest plans of his through small steps. And so our passage in Genesis 24 is really, uh, we see this happening in real time. This is a real life detailed example of what this looks like. We see people, mainly the servant, we see people taking small steps of faith that lead to big acts of God. Right, we see the servant kind of giving us a crash course of not necessarily just what small steps to take, but also how to take them. So as we dive into this, as we kind of parse this passage and kind of go through this really long part of scripture, that's kind of our main point, our big takeaway for the day is small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. Small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. We'll look at, through, look at that mainly through the lens of the servant, but we'll also talk a little bit about Abraham and his part at the beginning, and then a little bit about Rebecca and her family's part at the end, but we'll, we'll mainly kind of focus on the servant. And to kind of catch up to speed, if you've been uh, with us for the past two to three months, um, well, really, I should say for the past seven to eight months, we've been in Genesis. and the past two to three months, we've really been keying in on Abraham. Right, so this one, figure, this one figure, this one man of God and his family, we've kind of been um, tracking with him since Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is where we first met him. And so the past 13 chapters, which kind of equate to about 70 years of his life, we've just been following him and his journey what God's been doing through um, his life. And so we come to this chapter and the first nine verses he's involved in this. And um, I, I kind of say that we've been tracking him for three months because these are actually his last recorded words in scripture. Spoiler alert, next chapter, he just kind of dies. Like this, this, this man of God, this faithful man of God who had his ups and his downs, he doesn't go out with a bang, he kind of just like dies. And so that's helpful context as we consider his last words. Look at what he says last. Verse 7, he's speaking to the servant. Before he sends the servant out to kind of go on this journey and um, do this thing, he says this to him. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send an angel before you. So I think when we consider the fact that this is Abraham's kind of last line, last words, this hits a little bit differently. He's not saying this from his deathbed. Like, he lives for another 30 years, but this is his last kind of quotation in scripture. And it it's a little bit differently because Abraham has so far been like a man that is just like zero to 100, which I greatly identify with personally, right? He's had these kind of mountaintop experiences with God where he's been communing with God. He's been um, um, talking to God and bargaining with God and praying to God, and God's been working in and through him in mighty ways, and he's um, lived a holy and upright life, but he's also had these valleys. Right, these valleys of honestly stupidity, <laughs> and sin, and foolishness, and uh, underneath all of these things, he kind of is. This is a man that honestly frequently struggles to trust the promises of God, and it's ironic the very promises that he struggled to believe he actually uses to reassure the servant. And I think, and again, we're catching us all up to speed, I actually think this shows in a beautiful way how far Abraham's come. Like his small steps of faith over the course of his life. Not perfect, but small steps of faith. It shows us this kind of upward trajectory for his maturity and his walk with the Lord and where the Lord has brought him. That this man who struggled to believe these promises is now encouraging someone else with these promises. And so he encourages the servant. And the servant is the main character of this story. If you couldn't tell, it kind of centers on him. Well, God's the main character of every story, but the servant kind of gets the most airtime, And he takes these, these, these encouragements to heart. He takes these things seriously. The servant up to this point is probably, I would argue, the best example we have in Genesis from a holistic point of view of what it means to take small steps and to trust God. Noah's up there too, but probably him and Noah. And agreeing to go on the journey in the first place, like, that's a step of faith as it is because um, point A to point B, where he was headed, was probably about 500 miles. The chapter kind of reads, like, as if it's in one kind of swoop or one day, but it's it's probably over the course of 20-plus days. Honestly, it's about the equivalent of you getting 10 camels in Boston, if you can even do that kind of thing, and deciding to walk to D.C. or maybe Richmond, Virginia. If you made that drive, you know the drive is painful enough. Imagine walking it. But along the whole journey, we see him taking small steps of faith. Along the whole journey, um, we see him doing really three things that I kind of want to key in on, three things that I want us to just really focus on. And um, these three things, they're not necessarily so much what small step of faith should you take, but they're really how should you take a small step of faith. We see him do three things. If you do these three things, they'll help you immensely with whatever you're facing today, what decisions you have to make, what situations you're facing, what small steps you feel like you have to take. He does three things. First, he asks God. Second, he asks God again. And third, he worships. He asks God, he asks God again, and he worships. We'll talk about those three things. First, he asks God. We see him ask God in verses 12 through 14. He's praying to God. He says this, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. In other words, let's look at what the servant didn't do. What he didn't do was kind of take a step back and say, you know what, I have been serving Abraham And Isaac for years and years and years. I know their preferences. I understand what they want. I'm going to be able to go and make this decision by myself. Or I'm going to be able to trust in my own understanding and my own abilities and my own discernment to kind of figure out who this spouse should be. Now, what does he do? He quite simply asks God. God, show me. God, guide me. God, what do you want me to do? And so the application here for us is pretty one-to-one, right? In the context of small steps of faith, for some of us, we just need to involve God. We just need to ask God. Now, I know, like, some of you are like, yeah, of course. Well, like, obviously, right? But it's something we so often don't do. And I actually think some of the things that we say are simpler in the Christian faith, like this idea of asking God, are often the most hardest things. We so often don't do that. Like there's a lot of smart people in this room Or we think about steps of faith or kind of a decision-making process. Maybe you think about, you know, a pros and cons list or you think about Googling and researching things until 3 a.m. to help you make this decision or maybe you even, you do go and ask the people around you. Like in some ironic way, we involve God's people before we involve God, if we involve God at all, right? And then maybe at best, after we've kind of already made our decision, it dawns on us, oh, I haven't even like, prayed about this. And so then we pray about it, already knowing what we're going to do. But we want to be able to say that we prayed about it. Right? We don't ask God. And again, if you've been tracking with us in Genesis, we know the consequences for that kind of thing is disastrous. Like we've seen it all over. We've seen it in Abraham's life. We've seen him um, not ask God about various decisions or situations he's facing. And he, um, time and time again, twice now, has found himself in the exact same place, doing the exact same thing, the exact same lie about Sarah being his sister, and it compromises and endangers him and Sarah and the others. Or Lot, Abraham's nephew, if you remember him, he, at various points in time, did not involve God in his decision-making process, didn't ask God. If you remember in Genesis 19, it led him and his daughters to a really dark place. And so for us and the decisions we face, how many of us can kind of say the same? Right, too often we kind of take a step and then retroactively slap a sticker on it and says, this is this is God's will for my life. Like we tend to think, oh, if I kind of want this, I think it's what God would have for me. Whether it's A new job or a new role at work, or moving to a new part of the city, or moving out of the city, or dating this person or that person? Have you asked God about these things? Because we see Abraham's servant ask God. He doesn't freak out and try to anxiously try to figure it out himself, he asks God. And what happens? In a somewhat surprising way, God answers. In a way that sometimes that I wish that that I felt the clarity of God in that way. He answers. Right? In, In a very beautiful way, we actually see God working in the specificities of a prayer. Right? We see God working in super minor, almost mundane details. Think about what happens. Like Rebecca gets some water and pours it out for the servant and for the camels. And in that act alone, we see this grace of God. With the smallest bit of precision, God answers a prayer. In the smallest of details, God is at work in this story. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this idea of just kind of God being in these small details and in these small steps of faith. If I can be honest, it made me wonder like, do we miss God because we only look for him in the major places? Like, this text shows us, like, God's at work in the details. Those small things that you're tempted to not care about or think mean nothing, God's at work in and through those two. And this idea, it actually kind of reminded me of, of one of my favorite passages in Scripture. First um, Kings, there's this man named Elijah, and he's, he's a prophet, he's a man of God, and um, the Scripture kind of paints this account of of him kind of being alone on this mountain, and he's, he's wanting to hear from God. And um, it says this. It says this about Elijah. It says, A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and the Lord was in the whisper. And so could it be that you're missing God in the big things because you're not looking for God in the small things? Elizabeth Elliot, she's a, a author, a great author. She says if you believe in a God who's in control of the big things, you have to believe in a God who's in control of the little things. And so we see God answering the servant in a small, detailed, precise way. And what does this lead the servant to do? What's the second thing he does? First, he asks God. Then he asks God again. He asks God. He thinks God has answered the prayer. And then he asks God again. Read verse 21. After all this happens, Rebecca's poured the water for for him and his, his camels. And it seems like God's answered the prayer. What does he do? He says, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He asked, he think God has answered, and so he asks again. And what the servant not, is not doing here, he's not second-guessing God. He's not second-guessing kind of what has happened or like saying, did I, this is like so unreal to me. Did I like mishear God? Did I pray something different? Right, because when you read what the servant prayed for and then what Rebecca does, it's, it's like one-to-one exactly. The, the actions that happen and the words that are said are exactly what he prayed for, and they happen exactly that way. And so if you and I were in this situation, we would almost say, without a doubt, like, this is definitely from God. What the servant's doing here is he's saying, I want to be careful and deliberate, and I want to be sure that this is from God. In other words, just because something good comes your way, it doesn't mean initially that it's from God. A good example of this, of what it kind of looks like to ask and then ask again um, some of you know Abby Johnson. She's a member at, at Co Brookline. Um, she recently uh, just kind of felt prompted to get a new job. Right? She's been in the same job for a long time and kind of in the same role. And um, things might have been getting a little stale, a little dry. And so she prayed about it, and she was like, OK, I feel like maybe it's OK for me to kind of pursue a new job. And so um, after praying some, she starts doing what anyone who looks for a job does. right? She's searching. She's um, applying. She's interviewing. And then after some time, she gets some offers. Right, these offers, they are more money. Um, they offer her more flexibility. They're a little more exciting. Some of them were in a startup, or some of them were just doing a little bit more of the things she wanted to do. And instead of just kind of saying, okay, that's, that's an answered prayer, she asked God again, just to be sure. Because she wanted to be sure that this was from God that this particular offer. And so she asked God again, and she involved the, her, her, her friends and her community of faith around her, and she asked the people around her, like, hey, would you pray for this, about this specific situation and this specific job offer? And one of her friends actually came back to her and said, hey, I, I've i been praying, and I actually think you should, I think you should stay. And, and, and this is why, Abby, the, the reason is because the Eternal relational value you have with the people you've been working with for years far outweighs whatever new paycheck or whatever new role that they have offered you. And so, for her and her situation, because she asked God and because she asked God again, it became clear that she was supposed to stay. And she stayed. And it doesn't always work out this way, but the Lord blessed her. Like, she stayed. She got a raise. She was able to cut back on hours. She was able to kind of rewrite some of her job description. And so for her in that moment, a small step of faith was asking God, asking God again. And then it became clear, and she stayed. And so for some of us, that step of faith might be just asking God. Right? But for others, it can look different. Maybe it's stepping into a leadership role here. Whether it's leading a CG, serving in Koa kids, hosting a CG, right? Or maybe you've been coming here for some time and and you got to think about maybe a small step of faith is tithing or giving to the work of God in and through this church. Or maybe it's asking God again before you accept this new job offer or before you decide to date this person. There's a relational side to this too. Like maybe there's a you need to ask God about having a conversation with a specific person. This kind of hit me recently, um, like a year ago. I was not going to name names because it's someone we all know probably, but I was, and it's not Fletcher. Um, I was, <laughs> I was really mad at this specific person in my life. Um, they had done something that hurt me, and I was, and it's not my wife either. Sorry, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just going to keep narrowing people out. Um, (laughs) um, I was was really angry at this person. This was like a year ago. And um, I wanted to come and talk to them at that point in time and air out my dirty laundry and say, you hurt me in this way and you did this. And um, honestly, I was justifiably angry. Um, But I did these things. I asked God and I asked God again, should I go talk to this person? And in a very clear way, quite similar to how this story unfolded, I opened Psalm 4 unprompted. But with this scenario in mind, and the psalm literally read, be angry and be silent. Lay in your bed and think about these things. And I was like, frick, okay. <laughs> and so I didn't talk to that person at that point in time. A year goes by, and um, it's a different story if a year goes by and I'm allowing bitterness to fester in my heart, but that wasn't happening. A year goes by, and I kind of finally feel this sense of, oh, now's, now feels like a more proper time. And I kind of feel the Lord saying now is a good time to do this and so I went and talked to this person and it went really well and they repented and they asked for forgiveness and I realized had I gone to that person a year ago I would have blown him up I would have done a lot of damage like I was ready like I was ready to fire but I asked God And then I asked God again, and he answered. So again, the servant, he's asked God. He's asked God again, and what's the last thing he does? God answers his prayer, and it causes him to worship. Verse 26, read this with me. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness. Blessed be the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness. So what this shows us all along is what the servant is actually valuing behind it all. It's not the answer. right? It's not the solution to the situation. It's the God behind it all. He happens to know that behind this crazy encounter is God pulling the strings. Is God orchestrating it all? Notice what he didn't say. Right? Rebecca doesn't come up and pour the water, and then all of a sudden the servant doesn't jump up and say, I did it! I did it! Abraham's going to be so proud of me. Yes. No, what does he do? He worships. God has not abandoned his faith, kindness and faithfulness, and he has led me on this journey. And so it causes us to ask a pretty introspective question. If God were to answer your prayers, how would you react? Would you indulge yourself in those blessings? Or would you pat yourself on the back? Or would it lead you to worship the one who gave you those things? The servant asked God, he asked God again, and then he worships. But here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Here's kind of the one thing we haven't talked about so far. The the second half of our main point, right? Small steps of faith lead to big acts of God, right? These small steps of faith that the servant are taking, like, they're not, like, overly massive or complex to some degree, right? These are things that hopefully that, that you can kind of implement and do even today, right? But it's what they led to that make these small steps of faith so important. These small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. No, I'm not just talking about like Isaac marrying Rebecca, although a marriage and a wedding is like a big thing. What I'm really talking about is God's plan to save his people. God's redemptive plan working itself out through these stories of Genesis. That's what the small steps of faith lead to. If you've been tracking with us since Genesis 3... You know that in Genesis 3, something big and unfortunate happened. Sin entered into the world. Mankind sinned. And um, the relationship between God and his people is broken. And so all throughout Genesis, we have kind of these two paths, these two rising tensions. We have God's goodness, God's holiness um, going one direction. And we have humanity's brokenness and humanity's sinfulness and humanity's evil going the other direction. And kind of behind the scenes of every story, the question being asked is, how in the world is this going to get fixed? Because in Genesis 3, God promised it would happen. But the the climatic moment in most of the stories we're reading is, is this the moment? Is this the person that's going to bridge these two paths back together? That's going to bring God and humanity back together? And so far, time and time again, it's proven to be, no, not this person. Whether it's Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham. Not yet. Because we know On the other side of that, the other side of these small steps, these things eventually lead to Jesus. We know that Isaac and Rebekah, some 27 generations later, lead to Jesus. Isaac is in Jesus' family tree. He's in Jesus' genealogy, and, and I think it's Luke. You can see his name. Right, they didn't know it yet, but imagine if uh, the small steps of faith they took, if they knew that that contributed to God's plan to bring forth Jesus. And some of us think the same, right? You're like, God, if I just knew that, if I could see the big acts of God that were going to happen, if I took these small steps of faith, then I would be encouraged and I would be more inclined to take these steps. But friends, that's acting as if Jesus isn't coming back. You ever thought about that? We act as if the small steps of faith we take every day don't contribute to a certain moment, point in time that in some way, shape, or form leads to the return of Jesus. And so just as the steps of the servant, just as the steps that Abraham and Isaac take lead to God in the flesh eventually, so the steps that we take eventually lead to his return. Small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. And let's not forget how big God is in all this. He doesn't need our steps of faith to accomplish his plans. Whether or not you're faithful this afternoon in whatever decision is in front of you does not impact Christ returning. He's going to come back. But he invites us in. He invites us into participating in that plan. The last thing we'll talk about very briefly, just Rebecca and her family. Um I only had us read to verse twenty-eight because I didn't want to have to cut ten minutes out of the sermon um and read the rest of the story. Uh it's a really long chapter. Um and um if you don't know, uh, Rebecca goes back to her family and kinda of tells her all these uh tells them all these things and the servant comes as well and uh kind of talks at the dinner table, is like, hey, so uh I'm just trying to imagine this conversation. It's a much more normal conversation to have back then, but it seems really foreign to us. Like imagine just sitting down with someone's family and being like, Yeah, so um I got so some things happened and um you know, I got into some prayers, and I think uh, your daughter is supposed to marry um, my master's son. Like, that, that hits us in a weird way, but it's a little more normal back then. And um, Rebecca and her family, they respond in line with the servant and the rest of the story. They also take small steps of faith in ways that are overlooked, right? They don't sit and think, like, does this make sense for our family? Which it, it did. But does this make sense for our family, or um, economically, does it make sense No, they saw the work of God in the things that were happening and then they responded to that. And so Rebecca and her family too took steps of faith. They were earnestly looking for God in the details and in the things that were happening. And so as we close, I just want to hit on something I brought up earlier and that's just really considering what small step of faith is next for you. Because we have the tools of, of how to do it now. There's more to it than asking God, asking God again, and worshiping. But those are three really big things. And so the small step of faith for you today might just simply be, hey, I haven't read my Bible in days, weeks, months. I'm going to go home. Hey, hey, husband, hey, wife, will you watch the kids for 15 minutes? Will I just read some scripture? And then I'll watch the kids for 15 minutes. You can read scripture. Maybe it's praying or maybe it's um, you have unconfessed sin that uh, you know has been dragging you down and what that small step of faith looks like is, is coming and confessing that to someone in this room. What is this next small step of faith that you should be taking? Small steps of faith lead to big acts of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for you. God, we are thankful that you take our small, imperfect steps, full of sin, and use them for your good, and use them to do big things. God, you did that with sinful people to bring forth your son, and we're thankful for your son. God, help us to just live rightly, live faithfully. Help us to take small steps. Help us to ask you. Help us to ask you again, and help us to worship you. You know, you're these things, Amen.